Thanks, Henry. Hey, I'm Ben, one of the pastors here at Uni Church. Uh, it's, it's a good passage, isn't it? Lots of, lots of things going on there, lots of it that you might be familiar with, some of the more famous miracles of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000, the um, walking on water with Peter, uh, lots of good stuff in this passage. Did you notice there are two feeding miracles that happened, 5,000 and 4,000? Anyone, did anyone for the first time tonight realize that this happens twice? Yeah, yeah anyone? Okay. All right, that was just me. It was me a little while ago, and I realized that. Uh, why, does, why does Matthew record these two uh, very similar miracles? Why does he structure the narrative the way that he does? Matthew, through the last section of his gospel account, his biography of Jesus' life, has been working to show us the expanding scope of the kingdom of God, of the miracles that Jesus is doing, which started small as a mustard seed and are growing and affecting more and more people as they come to hear about who Jesus is and the way that he's bringing in God's kingdom. I wonder uh, if, like me, though, sometimes you need to be convinced that God is doing a big, miraculous work. Uh, You can feel kind of small in in your faith, and as you look around the city and all the different things that are going on, uh, do you you ever feel the sense of, is is God doing this big work, bringing in his kingdom? We, We can feel small. Or in our own lives, sure, God might be doing something out there, but what's he doing in, in my life? Do you feel that, ever feel that sense of like you feel a bit stagnant or a bit small and insignificant? Matthew in this section wants to show us that the kingdom of God going out is something big that happens out there as people hear and respond to Jesus, but just as big what happens in your own heart. As you hear about Jesus and respond and trust him in the ups and downs of life, what we call faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith, not wishful thinking, but a solid hope based in who Jesus is. So that's the question that we're going to be looking at tonight. Uh, Do we understand the scope of what God's doing out there and in here, in our own hearts? Let's pray that God would help us as we come to his word to, to hear that tonight. So why don't you join me and we'll pray. Father God, thank you so much that we get to come and listen to your word. We pray tonight that you would give us a bigger sense of what you're doing. We pray you'd help us to see Jesus fresh, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, but that we would see who he is, what he's doing in the world, bringing in his kingdom, and also what he's doing in our hearts. We pray that you would prepare us now to hear from you, that by your spirit we would be able to grow convictions, that you would shape the way we live, that we would leave this room changed as we come face to face with Jesus in your word. Amen. Okay, well, the, the first point there in your outlines, God's kingdom is expanding. I wonder if you were to rate Jesus' ministry so far in the book of Matthew, how would you rate it if you were one of his disciples? See, the way that Matthew writes, he's inviting us, the reader, to kind of enter into the narrative. He invites us in, and, and so it's the question that might be on your mind tonight. How's Jesus doing in his ministry? There's these big crowds flocking to him. He's healing lots of people. He's uh, casting out demons. He's performing miracles. He teaches like no other person has ever taught. He reveals God himself because he is in fact God. But at this point, they don't quite know that or understand that. But Jesus is showing them something deeply true about God himself. But it's not all good, is it? We saw in the start of chapter 14... Jesus left. Why? If you were here last week, we saw it was because 
Herod, the king of the region, has just beheaded one of his mates, John the Baptist. The, the guy whose ministry was to point to Jesus as the special one from God, Herod killed him because he didn't want to listen to God. And, and, and Jesus keeps having these run-ins with the Jewish authorities, the Pharisees. He, he keeps being misunderstood. People keep thinking that his kingdom is something physical here on earth. and He, has to, he teaches these parables about the kingdom that people don't quite seem to get Jesus. And even last week we saw that he was rejected in his own hometown. His own friends and family who he grew up with, they said, Nah, you're not anything special, Jesus. You're just one of us. Don't try and be someone better than you are. Maybe his disciples at this point are wondering, is this guy the real deal? Is he really who he says he is? Is he, is he worth that we gave up our lives to follow him, our careers, relationships, other things to, to give ourselves to follow him? Maybe you're wondering that tonight. Is it worth it? Is Jesus really the one that I ought have staked my life on? Maybe you're exploring that question. Is Jesus worth giving up anything for? Before we get into some of these miracles in depth, I want to kind of give us the big picture. I want to show us how Matthew structures the gospel. And really what I want to do for you is try and uh, teach you how to read the Bible. Uh, this is the kind of stuff you'll get if you come along to sharpen up, so you head along there next semester. But I want to kind of show us how gospel narratives work. So keep your Bibles open, we'll have a look. The first thing to note is we get two similar sets of narratives of, of miracles with a scathing critique of the Jewish leadership in the middle. So you can see it there on the screen. Uh, you can see it there. It's, it's kind of a, it's a miracle sandwich, right? You get at the top there in chapter 14, you get this feeding miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And then you get a miracle about a lack of faith. That's Peter on the water. And you get some healing miracles, the amazing healing that Jesus does. This kind of bringing in God's salvation. These are uh, referring back to Isaiah and some of the passages about the, the one from God who would do great things. And then you get this critique of the Jewish leadership in chapter 15, 1 to 20. Uh, scathing critique, which actually turns into something more than about the Jewish leadership. It actually points back to our own hearts and, and sin being the kind of problem that means that we relate to God wrongly. And then we see three more miracles. A miracle about faith, the Canaanite woman was read out. So more healing, which is amazing. Uh, huge crowds flock to Jesus, M miraculous things happening. The, the blind see, the, the lame walk, the deaf can hear. Uh, amazing miracles. And then another feeding miracle in the wilderness. Do you see the kind of structure of Matthew's gospel there? Why has he arranged his narrative like this? That's the question you need to be asking as you read the Bible. As you, as you go through a book of the Bible, which I, I trust, if you don't do that, this is one of the best ways to hear from God, is just to regularly and routinely read through the Word. And you need to ask these questions. Why? How do the accounts that are in the Bible fit within each other? How do the chapters work? What's Matthew doing? He's doing a few things. I think, firstly, he wants to highlight and strongly critique the Jewish leadership. And so he puts that bang in the center. And this is really important, the Jewish rejection of Jesus' teaching and ultimately the rejection of God. And so he puts it in the center. It's the most important thing. We're going to come back next week and look at that passage, Matthew 15, 1 to 20. There's also some repetition. And I think by seeing repetition in the narrative, you start to come up with these similar themes. So, so have a look here, uh, Matthew 14, verse 14. Uh, in, in the first feeding miracle, Jesus comes to the crowd and he has great compassion. Now in the second feeding miracle, Matthew 15, 32, if you go to the next slide. 
We'll see it there. Uh, he, Jesus called on his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd. Now, Matthew wants us to know something about Jesus as you look at these different miracles. What is it? He has compassion. He wants us to see and highlight the compassion of Jesus. But there's also contrasts in the stories. So if you go to the next slide, Matthew 14, 31, Jesus talking to Peter after he, the incident on the waves, he says to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt, Peter? I was here with you. Versus look at what he says to the woman, the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. Woman, your faith is great. We're supposed to see two stories, one about a lack of faith and one a, a woman full of faith. And, and they're held up for us to show us that they're different. Interestingly, in Matthew's gospel, the people that we expect to respond in faith often fail. The, the Jewish leaders, those who are expecting God's promised king, they miss him. The disciples, they're a, they're a mixed bunch. Uh, but often they don't quite get who Jesus is. And Peter here is an example of a lack of faith. But it's those who we don't expect to have faith that have it. This woman here is one of two people in Matthew's gospel that is said to have great faith. The other is the Roman centurion a few chapters ago. Two people who weren't even Jewish, and they're the ones that Jesus puts forward as having great faith in his gospel. So we see Matthew highlight these differences to, to show us something about faith. And the last thing to, to highlight here before we move on is the geography. Now, if you're a local living in you know, 30 AD, you, you would have kind of, these place names would have been familiar to you. That's where you went on holiday, that one you went to school on, you know, this place, and that's where your grandparents live. But we're not locals to uh, the ancient Near East in, in, the, in the AD 30, so let me show you. If we pull up the map, uh, you can see the first set of miracles, those first three up the top, they were all done in Jewish territory. That's Israel, the kind of yellow bits there, Jewish territory, uh, and, and to Jewish, Jewish kind of people, right? And, and what we see is then you get this scathing critique of Israel who reject Jesus as the sent king of God, and then three more miracles which happen in Gentile territory. And a Gentile is just anyone who's not Jewish, but the kind of feeding miracle, uh, or the, the miracle with the Canaanite woman happens up there, see up the top, Tyre and Sidon. That's where that miracle happens. And they come for a feeding, and it happens kind of, uh, the, the second feeding miracle happens in the Decapolis, in that purple region. And, and you get the healings that happen, that's kind of somewhere in the, what color is that? Like a orangey pink? I don't, I don't know, what, what's that color? Whatever that color is. Uh, three miracles in Jewish region. Jewish rejection of Jesus the Messiah. Three miracles in a Gentile region. Matthew's highlighting this uh, expanding scope of Jesus' mission and who he goes to. And it's exactly the point of the kind of uh, hinge moment in Matthew's gospel here of the Gentile woman's faith. So open it up with me, chapter 15, verse 21. This Gentile woman from Tyre and Sidon, a Canaanite woman, comes to Jesus and his disciples and she's crying out. She keeps crying out. Uh, Matthew wants to highlight for us twice She's a Canaanite, she's not Jewish, she's from Tyre and Sidon, she's not from Judah, right? She's not an Israelite. He, he wants to make it clear. And, and she's kind of calling out to Jesus and his disciples to heal the daughter, but Jesus doesn't respond. And, and she just keeps crying out. And the disciples say in verse 23, send her away because she's crying out after us. Now implied here is the disciples to say, they're saying something like, Jesus, can you just heal her so she'll leave us alone? 
It's not motivated by compassion. It's actually motivated by not wanting to be bothered. But Jesus, he replies in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, here we get this kind of picture of what's going on here. Jesus came as the Messiah of Israel, the King of Israel, uh, to the people group of Israel at that time as their promised king. His mission started with Israel, but what we see is in the Gospel of Matthew, Israel reject Jesus. They're not interested. We're going to see it next week. The, 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 The leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, they aren't interested in God's king. They don't want to listen to him. They don't want to follow him. They don't want to trust him. They reject him. And, and so Jesus' kingdom, while it starts out as a mission to Israel, and it, he says, I've, I've come to the house of Israel, it actually expands in scope in the gospel. And this is the moment where Jesus' scope expands, when he actually heals the daughter of this Canaanite woman in Gentile territory. See, while he says that he's come for Israel, his actions show that he's actually come for all people. And you get this expanding scope where you get to the end of the gospel and actually Jesus says, make disciples of all nations and I'll be with you in that task. And so you see this expansion of the gospel. Uh, Jesus, Jesus says he's come for the lost sheep of Israel. And the woman agrees. She says, yeah, yeah I understand that. Even though you've come to Israel, verse 25, she, she comes again and kneels before him and says, Lord, help me. She's, she's desperate, she's in need, and she knows that Jesus can do something about her problem. He replies in verse 26, It isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, Jesus isn't calling this woman a dog. He's using a kind of a, a word picture, a, a parable, a metaphor, if you will, to explain what he's doing. He's saying, I've come for the, the children of Israel and, and, and other people, that they're, they're like the dogs in this story, uh, not calling her a dog, it's not harsh like that, but he's saying, I've come with a responsibility to my own, my own children, the children of Israel. And, and, and she understands that. Uh, you, you see the response there in, in 27, yes, Lord. Yeah, I, I get it. You've got a responsibility to Israel. But look what she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. See, she, she knows that uh, Jesus has come for Israel. He's got a special responsibility. He's trying to share with the Israelites that he's their promised king, the one who's going to bring all the blessings of what it is to be in right relationship with God to Israel. But she says, even there's, a, there's some crumbs that fall off. And actually, what she's doing is she's acknowledging that Actually, God is master of more than just Israel. He's the the master, the ruler of all. She recognizes that Jesus is the one who can meet her greatest need, even despite the fact that she's not an Israelite, even despite the fact that she's not one of God's people. See, throughout the whole Old Testament, Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations. They're supposed to live God's way, and, and, and through them, God is supposed to bless all of the world. But Israel fail at that task time and time again. And what we see here in Matthew's gospel is it's ultimately the Israelites' rejection of Jesus that leads to the blessing of the gospel going out to all the other nations. That's what we see here. Jesus replies to her, verse 28, Woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. Here's this moment where this woman comes to Jesus with such need. Such need. She knows that he's the only one who can work to change the situation. 
He's the only one with the power to bring about the change. But here's the deal. She knows that Jesus has the power, but she knows more than that. See, if, if, if Jesus just had power to do something, but he didn't care, why approach him? Sure, he's, he's got the power, but if he didn't actually care, then it, it would be useless to ask. Or if Jesus just cared deeply for people, but didn't have power to do anything, again, it would be useless to ask. He would, he would empathize, he would care, he would show sympathy, but he couldn't do anything. But what we see here is that faith is understanding that Jesus is both in control and that he cares. It's that he has the power to act in our world and he wants us to come to him because he cares for us. See, do you have a growing conviction in your life that God cares? That he's in control of the big things in life and the small things, but that he cares for you? We're supposed to read this story and see an example of faith. I wonder, some of us, we think uh, God's got two big things on his mind. He, he, he's got too much going on. How could he care about someone small like me? And yet the consistent message of the Bible is that God cares for you individually. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows your worries. He knows how you're going and the ups and downs of the individual circumstances of your life. He knows you intimately. And he cares for you. He's the one who's in control of all things. And yet here we see that we have this kind of intimate access to him. We can ask him things and he cares. Do you do that? Do you bring your worries to God? Or do you just bottle them up and let them kind of build up inside you? See, what we see here is that faith looks like coming to God with our needs. It looks like knowing that he's the one who can change our lives and our situations and actually bringing it to him. Do you pray like God actually can act? Or are you just bringing things to him routinely because that's what you do if you're a Christian? This is the moment where the gospel message shifts to go out to all the nations. And what we see is that being one of God's people is not about your cultural background. It's not about if you're an Israelite or not. It's not about whether your parents were Christian or not. It's not about whether you come to church and follow the kind of religious traditions and rules of a certain group. It's not about anything else other than what you think of Jesus, whether you trust him. It, see, what is it to be Christian at the core? It's to have faith. It's to trust Jesus that actually he's the king and that he's the one that on the cross he died for you and dealt with the problem of your sin before God. That there is between You and God is Jesus who uh, takes on your sin and gives you his perfect righteousness so that you can come back into relationship with him. It's not about what your parents do. It's not about anything else that you can have except for trusting Jesus and his finished work on the cross. See, that's the the essence of faith that we see here. And and I want to show us faith is actually more than that, though. It's actually... is displayed in and around the situations of our lives. So let's have a look. Second point, faith in the wilderness. Come back to chapter 14. We're going to unpack this feeding miracle of the 5,000. <clears> now, lots of us might be familiar with this story. I remember Jesus has just heard one of his best mates has been killed, murdered by a, a, a political despot, a, a king mad, mad on his own power, King Herod. And he's probably aware of the danger that he's in. 
right? If he's murdered my best mate, he's probably going to come for me at some point. But more than that, he, he, you see it there, chapter 14, verse 13. He removes there, he removes himself to a remote, remote place to be alone. He probably wants to grieve, take some time to process, to pray, to spend time with God. Uh, but the crowds, they hear about the fact that Jesus is on the move. And, and he gets in the boat and kind of uh, is sailing up the edge of the coastline, and the crowds all kind of follow him up the town, from their towns into the middle of the wilderness, just kind of south of Capernaum, if you remember on the map. And Jesus comes ashore hoping for some peace, hoping for a time to process, to, to reflect on what's going on in his life. But verse 14, he sees this huge crowd. You imagine Jesus at that moment. He's like, great, I'm on the way to the wilderness, the desert, there's a remote place, and there's this giant crowd there. Now, I don't know about you, but this, there's almost something uh, extra human. You know that moment when you're at the end of your emotional kind of tether, and you just need to, just need to get away? And, and in that moment, can you imagine if you walk around the corner and there's like a surprise party or something for you? You're just like, oh, no, I just need to chill and relax. And, but Jesus here... What's his response to this huge crowd, which is the exact opposite of what he was wanting in that moment? It's compassion. Verse 14, he saw this large crowd, had compassion on them, and he heals them and teaches them. <clears throat> he has compassion, and then uh, he spends the day with them. And verse 15, evening comes, and the disciples say, hey, it's deserted, no one's got any food, let's send the people to these nearby town so they can get something to eat. And what does Jesus reply, verse 16? He says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. I'm not sure the tone Jesus said this with, but I wonder if he had a smile on his face. A kind of a, the disciples come, they've got a big problem, and they've got a neatly organized solution. No one's got any food, send them away. But Jesus says, why don't you give them something to eat? He invites them to put aside their kind of preconceived idea and uh, draw them in to see how could you help. And in verse 17, they reply, we've only got five loaves and two fish. They put forward this packed lunch. And, and for them, they put it forward and they say, here's an example of why it's impossible for us to do anything. But Jesus looks at it and he says, this is the basis for action. This is, what, this, this is exactly what we need. See, what are you supposed to yell out as readers of Matthew's gospel at this point? Remember who you're with. Remember who you're with. This is the man who has healed the sick. This is the man who rose someone from the dead. This is the man who, with a word, calmed a storm. This is the man who, when he arrived, demons trembled and fled from him. Remember who you're with, one with the power of God. You want the disciples to kind of bring it to Jesus and say, what can you do here? You've got the power. But they don't do it. But Jesus Ask them, bring, bring, the, bring the lunch to me. Verse 19, he prays over it, breaks it up, hands out the food. And Matthew records that everyone ate and was satisfied. Everyone ate and was satisfied with 12, 000, 12 baskets of leftover food. This is 5,000 men, which is uh, not counting the women and children, so we're probably looking like 15 to 20,000 people. This is kind of Eden Park coming out of a football game when the Blues are playing kind of a crowd, right? They're, they're, they're rushing out onto the streets. Imagine that kind of size of crowd. This is totally amazing, utterly miraculous. We've never seen anything like this before. Jesus is the guy you want with you when you go to a party, 
that runs out of food. I was just at a conference recently with a thousand people and, and watching the food kind of come out, it was like just cartloads of food to feed a thousand. And we kind of queued up and went through the queues and it was amazing food actually, this conference. But imagine that and it just out of, out of nothing, out of, out of five loaves and two little fish, it's this massive operation. It's completely miraculous. Now some people, they look at an event like this and they just write it off completely. That might be you here tonight. There's just no way that kind of thing is physically possible. And, and so they'll kind of try and come up with some rational explanations for what's happening. Uh, it might be that, you know, maybe Jesus started sharing his food around and everyone was touched by Jesus' generosity and they thought, oh yeah, we want to kind of get in on this. And they all started sharing their food and so everyone had enough. Or, you know, maybe everyone had a lick of a bit of bread and then they were miraculously satisfied somehow or... That would be a bigger miracle being satisfied by like one lick of bread and a little scale of fish than what Jesus actually did. Uh, they just write this narrative off as unhistorical. Uh, we, we come with this preconceived idea that miracles can't happen. And so people come and they go, well, there's got to be another explanation. See, what's going on there for lots of people is this idea that is shaping their worldview called naturalism. Naturalism is the idea that the universe is a closed system of cause and effect. That what happens in the world is just uh, the laws of nature, and there's nothing outside of that, no, no bigger power, nothing uh, happening outside of this cause and effect system which we can measure and contain and know by studying the kind of scientific method. And so they come with that, uh, with that worldview, and then if you come with that worldview, something like a miracle can never exist. Because to the, the naturalistic worldview, that sits outside of the laws of nature, right? Do you understand? That's what a hundred years ago, it would have been nearly impossible to not believe in God. But we've gone through this great shift with the Enlightenment and the kind of rationalist thinkers and the scientific method, and we're left in this place where, uh, for many people today, it's almost impossible to conceive of a world where there is a God, because this naturalistic worldview is uh, front and center. It's what's taught in a lot of our universities and schools. The laws of physics just kind of operate the way they do because that's the way the world works. There's nothing more there. But for the Christian, we know that there is a God, a creator who made everything, who sustains all things by the word of his power, who, who is upholding the laws of, of physics, the, the gravity, the, the laws of our world are kept in place by the God who made it. Yes, there are natural causes and effects, and yes, as Christians, we're, we trust the scientific method and we're not denying science in any kind of way, but do, do you see, if, if you come to the Bible with this naturalistic worldview, you'll never get to Jesus, because Jesus is far more than just of this world. He is God in the flesh come to us, the creator and sustainer of all things, who entered into our world. And so when we see miracles, they're actually a pointer to the God who is in control of the natural order of our universe. When we see something that goes outside of the natural way things happen, it ought make us stop and pause and look and ask questions about it. See, the miracles in the Bible, often they're described as signs. They point to something greater than themselves. They point to God. See, in, in the Bible, it's God who is the ability to shape the natural universe because he made it. 
He made it from nothing, and so he's got the power over it. And what do we see here in the wilderness? Jesus is the one with the power of God. See, in Exodus 16, uh, if, you, if you know that story in, in your Bibles, Israel have just come out of the wilderness. And, and they come into the desert and they're hungry and they're complaining before Moses and they're saying, did you just rescue us out of Egypt to kill us and starve us? And God, God hears their complaints and he says to Moses that he will rain down bread on them in the wilderness. And so that everyone will eat it and be satisfied. And so when Matthew, the choice of words that he uses, the the way the narrative happens, here's Jesus in the wilderness with the people of God, raining down bread on them, and they eat, and what are they? They're satisfied. See, why do we have this miracle? Because Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is God. He comes with the power of God. He comes to care for us, just how God did for his people in the Old Testament. See, Jesus knows what we need. He's got the power to meet it, and he's got the compassion to walk alongside us. There's no task too big for Jesus. The disciples saw that all they could see was the great need, but Jesus, in his limitless power, meets every need. A few months later, we see the second feeding miracle happen, except this time it's in Gentile territory. We've talked about that. And we won't go into the account in detail, but when we read it out, weren't you just hoping that one of the disciples was going to say, Jesus, you've got the power. Were you hoping for that? Like, what, what were they doing? They literally just saw Jesus feed Eden Park Stadium out of, out of a boys' pack lunch, and, and then just later, they're just as confused. What's going on there? The crowd, again, the disciples, they, why didn't they notice and ask Jesus to, say, to do something? They're focused on their need. They're focused on their lack rather than on Jesus and his power. And I think we get it twice, partly because the disciples are slow learners, but I think we get it twice because you and I, we're slow learners. How often in our own lives are we focused on what we don't have, on what we need, on on the lack in our lives? It might be a, a lack of confidence or knowledge to talk about Jesus. It might be a lack of, where do I fit in? How can I, what gifts has God given me to love and serve others? How cool is it hearing Sarah's story and how God's gifted her? You might be sitting there going, what's my gift? How has God wired me to love others? It might be a lack of money and, 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 and not knowing if you have enough to get by the next week, let alone be generous with what God's given you. We're so focused on our lack as Christians sometimes. But I think this miracle is here to show us that we ought not focus on our lack, but on God and his power. See, God takes our lack, our smallness, our feelings of insignificance, and he multiplies them into eternity when we give ourselves to his kingdom work. He loves to work with weak and needy people like us. It's in those moments where we feel small and powerless and weak that we can turn to Jesus in his limitless power, in his unending compassion, and turn to him in trust. That he is sustaining us, comforting us, providing for us. He's given us his spirit working in us to produce great fruit for the gospel. Remember the, the story of the soils? The good soil produces fruit a hundred times more. See, faith here means trusting not in your strength, in your abilities, but in Jesus. 
in his strength, in his power, what he's done. Not in the good works or the things that you do, but in his finished work on the cross. Our smallness just points to his limitless power. And so faith trusts that Jesus is in control and he's good, even when we can't see how he's at work in our lives when we feel small. It's a faith in the wilderness. But thirdly, last point, a faith among the waves. Uh, Come to verse 22 with me. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He dismisses them and he finally gets some time to go away and pray. Goes up the mountain, prays on his own, well into the night. It's night and he's praying and the disciples, meanwhile, are on a boat and they're going out into the middle of the lake and they're getting battered by the storm. And the next thing we see is Jesus coming towards them. Verse 25, he comes towards them in the sea in the very early morning. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. It's a bit of a random, it's a ghost. I don't know what's going on for the disciples there. Uh, But it's not a ghost, it's Jesus. And to prove it, he says in verse 27, he spoke to him and says, Have courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. This is actually a command from Jesus. Have courage. Take courage. In the face of the storm, Jesus comes to them and says, look, it's me. Take courage. And I'm sure at that moment, the disciples would have remembered the last time they got caught in a storm on this very lake. They were freaking out, thinking they were about to die. And they wake Jesus and say, we're all going to die. And he says, don't fear. And he calms the storm with a word. He rebukes them for their little faith. In fact, the phrase he uses here, it is I, is, is, it's unnecessary in the original language. Uh, the way that he's phrased it, this is the Greek words to describe God in the Old Testament. He's saying, I, I am the one who is. That's basically what he's saying. It is I who is, is what Jesus is saying. That's the way that God describes himself, the I am, the one who was and is and is to come. See, Jesus is flagging for them here that he's no mere man, as if walking on water wasn't enough to prove it already. And in response to this, Peter, probably remembering the last time he was in a boat feeling afraid and being rebuked for it, jumps. he's the kind of uh, inspirational or perhaps impulsive one of the group, and he, and, and he says to, to, to Jesus in verse 28, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Wow, this act of faith. And and Jesus says, come. And he climbs out of the boat and starts walking towards Jesus. But then Peter sees the wind and the waves. And verse 30, he sees the strength of the wind and he's afraid. And he begins to sink and cries out, Lord, save me. And, and, And again, this tragic kind of story for Peter. Verse 31, Jesus reaches out, grabs him and says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? See, the storm is calmed and all the disciples there, they worship Jesus. Again, Jewish people, they would never worship anyone other than the one true God. Jesus is more than a human. He's God here to them. But can you imagine Peter in this moment? I blew it again. I wanted to kind of jump out and prove my faith uh, before Jesus. And again, I I blew it. He, He shifted his concentration from the Savior to the storm around him. And he started to doubt started to doubt if Jesus was good, if Jesus was really in control in this chaotic situation. See, that's what caused him to sink, shifting his focus from the Savior to the storm. 
And as, as we read this account, we're supposed to see another thing about faith. And it makes us ask the question of our own lives, in the storms of my life, what is my focus on? See, having faith in Jesus doesn't mean that life will be easy. It doesn't mean that things will go your way. But faith in Jesus means fixing your eyes on him, even in the hardness of life, even in suffering, even in pain, even in brokenness. It means trusting the one who is in control and who cares, the one who holds on to you and will never let you go. See, when you get fired from your job or when you get that diagnosis that you've been dreading, when you get that paper back with an F grade on it that you've been working hard on all semester, see, what's going to help you weather the storms of your life? What's going to help you there? It's because that you know in Jesus your identity is secure, that you're safe with him, that you're one of God's children, that your eternity with God is safe. Your salvation has been won. See, we know that God is at work for the good of all those who love him, and that doesn't mean that there will never be hard things and suffering and brokenness in your life, but it means that God will use them to grow your trust in Jesus. And so knowing that, no matter what happens in your life, if your eyes are fixed on the Savior, you can weather the storms of this world. You can turn to God, you can trust him, no matter what happens in your life. Can I encourage you tonight, Uni Church? Whether you're going through something hard right now, what you need to do is look to Jesus. You need to trust him in the midst of what you're going to. You need to hold on to him and his goodness and his control. You need to trust that he's at work in your life for your good. And, and right now, you might not be in that situation. Life might be really good. Can I encourage you? There will be hard times in your life. There will be moments of brokenness and pain and suffering. And if you go in unprepared for them, what you'll do is you'll fix your eyes on the storm and you'll start to sink. You'll start to wonder, is God really good? Does he even care about me? Is he even in control? But if you build in yourself a conviction before the storm starts that God is the one to hold on to in the storm, you'll be able to go in with your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's be a church that's real with each other, that's honest about our, our failings and our doubts. See, faith in Jesus doesn't mean uh, thinking things are all going to be good and being shallow. It doesn't, it doesn't mean never doubting that God's good. But it means even in the midst of the storm, being able to turn, turn to him and trust him that he's good. Isn't Jesus amazing? Don't you see here this uh, bigger picture of Jesus who is compassionate with people who doubt? With Peter. We're going to see later on in the gospel... Jesus says that he's going to build his church on Peter, the guy that, can't, that sinks in the storm, the guy that rejects Jesus and, and says three times before the rooster crows that Jesus, he's not with Jesus. Isn't Jesus amazing? He's with us, comforting us. He's powerful. Nothing's outside of his control. And he cares. He's the one I want to lean into in the storms of life. He's in control and he cares. Let's pray that we do that together. Father God, we're so thankful for King Jesus. We've seen here tonight that his kingdom is about far more than a geographical area or a political group or a cultural group. It's for those who will have faith in him, who will trust that he truly is the one who can deal with our sin and who will want to live then for him as the king of their lives in repentance and faith. We're so thankful for King Jesus. Would you help us when 
we, all we can see is lack, to be reminded of Jesus' limitless power to act in the world and to act in our own lives. And would you help us when we, when we are focused on the storms of our lives to be reminded to fix our eyes on the Savior, the one who's got us, who's holding us in his strong hand, who won't let us go. Thank you for King Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.